You're listening to the Dibbly Dobbly Podcast. Remember to like, share, comment, subscribe, and click the bell to make sure you get the latest episodes of the podcast. Be sure to like and share our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. So moving on to our next topic, Daryl. There may be some up-and-coming umpires watching this discussion and may be unsure about how to go about certain things within umpiring. So for our next discussion of this discussion, for our next topic, I should say, of this discussion, let's talk about the fundamentals of umpiring and give some tips and advice to any umpire who may be struggling and need some guidance. So let's talk about preparation, Daryl. It's very important to prepare as an umpire. We've got to prepare in everything in life. Um, as a player, as an umpire, you need to prepare before a game or a series, making sure you read the laws and the playing conditions for whatever series or competition you are umpiring, speaking to your partner the night before who you may be umpiring the game with, talking about laws and playing conditions, sharing information on players, teams, um, conditions, grounds. Um, and Daryl, I came across a document which you did for the ICC um, in preparation for a World Cup match in 2011 in Chittagong. And you talked about how you prepared, you were working with um, preparing with the ground staff, you know, getting the, you know, the certain, um, you know, getting the, the balls ready because there was a bit of dew that was going to come during the game and the ground staff were ready with mops and ropes to uh, in the second innings for, for the dew, obviously, to when it, when it came in. Um, you were talking about your exchanges with Graham Swan in that game because it was England versus uh, Bangladesh in Chittagong. Yes. And yeah. um, you were talking about your exchanges with Graham Swan. He was saying, I can't bowl with this ball. Uh, you said, we'll give it to someone else who can. Um, and you were talking about how we planned to change the ball after 21 and 30 overs due to the surfy nature of the of the outfield and, and that. Um, talking about that and preparing for that so Daryl how important was it to do that preparation in that World Cup match and how did you go preparing before games or a series during your time as an international umpire and what advice would you give on any up-and-coming umpire on preparation well there's a couple of different aspects to it I mean if it's an international match uh, and you've got a, a partner uh, you've generally umpired with them before you're always spending time in the days leading up to the game, talking about all the different aspects and covering, trying to cover all the possibilities that could happen. I think in that case in Bangladesh, in Chittagong in 2011, I have a hunch that that might have been the very first one-day international that had ever been played in Chittagong uh, as a day-nighter. I think they played on that ground, well, I know they played on that ground many times before, but a day-nighter was a different proposition because... At the change of innings, it was almost as if someone had come out and hosed down the ground. It was the dew factor was just enormous. And we were, we were alerted to that by the ground staff. They told us what to expect. We did have a lot of balls uh, available. Uh, in those days, I believe we had a mandatory change of ball after 35 overs, 34, yes, 35 yes, overs. That's correct, yeah. But, but on this occasion in, uh, in Chittagong, we knew that the ball was going to be out, out of condition much earlier than that. So uh, I was umpiring with Rod Tucker and I seem to recall that um, Graham Swan was bowling the seventh over of a 50 over match when he complained. It was complained the eighth over actually. Was the eighth over? Okay. Yeah, eighth over, but yeah. I knew it was pretty early, uh, yeah. single digit. Um, and um, 
Yes, I, I just, uh, I suppose I, I took the hard line. I could imagine that if I changed the ball in the eighth over, I'd be changing it again in the 10th, the 12th, the 15th, and so on. We'd run out of balls. There wouldn't be enough balls around. No, we had to be fair to both teams. Um, you have to deal with the conditions that you're confronted with. There was a reason why Bangladesh won the toss and fielded because they knew there would be a Jew. And I'm sure without checking any records, they probably just had the mandatory ball change after 34, 35 overs. And they, I think they bowled England out for 225-ish, somewhere around about that mark. And when England came out and uh, it was quickly obvious that um, you know the ball was going to be uh, wet very quickly and become soapy, that's the time that it's very hard to grip. Uh, but I couldn't envisage changing the ball after eight overs. After it had been used for seven, uh, at the start of the eighth over, it just wasn't going to happen. So, uh, yeah, I, I remember Graham being quite irate about the fact that uh, I wouldn't automatically change it because he, he wanted it. Um, we did exchange a few words. I thought it was a reasonable answer when he told me that he couldn't bowl with that effing ball. I just suggested he give it to someone that could. Um, it seemed straightforward to me. Um, that's basically... Um, leads on me on to the other question you ask about preparation for an umpire. I think an umpire should always ensure that he is his natural self. If, if, you, if you have a sense of humour and that works for you, then you use it. Dealing with people. It's the same in any walk of life, in business, uh, in education, um, walking up and down the street. I mean, if, if, you, if you're a people person, then you use those skills. If you're not, you don't. So my, my main piece of advice to any up-and-coming umpire would be to be themselves. Don't try and impersonate another umpire. Don't try and copy someone else's style or mannerisms. Be natural, be, be yourself. And uh, that's something that I always uh, try to ensure. Um, and I think that that's got me through a lot of uh, very difficult situations over a, a long uh, career of over 830 games of cricket. So, yeah, be natural, be relaxed. And when someone gets upset, like Graham Swan did, don't get upset as well. It doesn't, it doesn't help the situation if two people are, are aggressive. Just try and be a calm uh, or a calming influence on, this, on the situation. And because, you know, those moments will occur in, in your cricket career. There'll be times when people aren't happy with you, whether it be the captain, the batsman, the bowler, fieldsman. Um, you've just got to deal with it in a professional and calm manner, um, if you can. That's right. Um, the important message here, just be yourself, you know, just be natural exactly. and just have fun, really enjoy yeah. the job. It's, it's a job, but it's, it's the best job in the world. It is. Um, so routines are very important for umpires, Daryl. You've got to have a good routine or rituals, sure. as we call them. Yeah. Um, Every umpire has a different routine that, that they follow pre-game, during the game and post-game. There's no set routine that each umpire follows. Uh, routines come in different shapes and forms. Daryl, how important is it as an umpire to have a good routine? And what was your routine when you umpired? What was my routine? Well, I mean, routine, you have so many different routines in a day. It's, it, you, know, you, you can't nominate them. Let's just pick one. One would be uh, counting, counting the balls in the over. Every, every umpire is out there with a, a counter of some type. Um, David Shepard used to have little toy 
beer barrels. I think they were Watney's beer barrels, about the size of a 10 cent coin, 20 cent coin, something, something of that nature. Um, other umpires I've seen have six stones in their hand and they transfer one stone across to the other hand or he would put his little beer barrel across and pop it in his pocket. But you need to set yourself up with a routine and often it's decided or determined very early in your career because it's what you just do instinctively on the first game. When do you count the delivery? Do you count the delivery as the bowler's about to deliver the ball? After he's delivered the ball? When the ball's dead? When? And, and every umpire would have their own mannerism or a way of doing it. Um, I'm thinking back to when I was umpiring, I would actually be pressing my counter as the bowler was in his delivery stride. And if he delivered a no ball, then of course I'd have to recalculate, I'd have to go back um, depending on the type of counter I had and, and, and get it accurate again. If it was a wide or a no ball, it would, would take a bit of a checking. And you've always got your partner out at square leg. Uh, generally speaking, most will signal to you, not just necessarily with two to go. Some umpires will signal when there's three to go. Some umpires will signal immediately after a, uh, a an extra delivery. For example, if there's been a no ball or a wide and you've just given two to go before that delivery, there's obviously still another two to go. So the umpire will, will look at each other again and give the two to go signal. They'll repeat that because there's still two to go. So whatever ritual or habit you come up with, it's a matter of maintaining it and letting it become second nature. And as a result, you'll have very, very few slip ups. I'm not saying you'll be per perfect because none of us have been. Uh, I don't know of an umpire that's uh, ever umpired who hasn't miscounted at some stage or another. It, it, it will happen. It's a game played by humans, umpired by humans. There will be, there will be errors involved. We accept that. We just like to try and keep them to a minimum. Absolutely. Um, focus and concentration is a big thing, Daryl. Concentrating for long periods of time are very important for an umpire, and you have to master that. Uh, just like the players, umpires need good focus and concentration during a game. Um, we cannot fully focus for long periods of time. Like in a test match, you can't concentrate for six hours straight. Um, just doesn't happen that way. So you need to find ways and strategies to switch on, switch off, or switch up sure. or switch down in between balls, uh, just to relax your mind and reset and refocus for the next delivery. Um, so Daryl, during your international career, you have umpired in some games where big crowds were involved in lots of noise and distractions. So Daryl, what was your method in dealing with all those distractions and what advice would you give to any up and coming umpire on how to improve their focus and concentration? Well, first of all, you don't need to concentrate for very long at all. You know, in a, in a, in a day's play with, let's say, 90 overs, um, when you're at the bowler's end for 45 overs, um, what's that, 270 deliveries? Uh, it's, it's not a huge amount. But you're not focused all the time. You're not concentrating all the time. When the ball becomes dead, you go into a different mode. You're not stressed. You might be watching the ball go back, relayed through through the through the fielder. Back, you don't you don't see it necessarily go back to the bowler because he's behind you, but you sense when he's about to start his run up, and that's when you start to switch your focus back on. So you're only really focusing for four or five seconds at a time, 270 times a day at the bowler's end. It doesn't amount to a huge amount, but what you've got to do is you've got to 
ensure that when you do switch on, you switch on fully and you don't let anything distract you. Because um, if you can get it, if you're in a partway through a conversation and a ball's bowled, it can be distracting if you've got your mind somewhere else or you're thinking about home or you're thinking about the kids or you're thinking about, you know, what your friends are up to or you're thinking about those people over in the crowd enjoying watching and having a beer and you're not. Um, it's, it's all a matter of just focusing for a small period of time, get it right, then relax. You might have a word to the non-striker. You might speak to the bowler as he walks past. You might tell him that he's very close to the front of the pop increase. You might uh, be having a conversation about someone's private life. Uh, you might be talking about one of his teammates. Uh, Gautam Gambia for India used to come down to the bowler's end and ask me about his batting technique. Did I get my front foot across far enough, Daryl? Where was that pitch, Daryl? Did I have that one covered, Daryl? Yes, Gautam, yes, Gautam. You know, you're looking good, keep it up. Um, so there are a lot of things that can distract you, but it's all a matter of turning those off and focusing for four or five seconds until the action's finished. Absolutely. Um, training is very important for umpires as well, Daryl. Going down to the nets, it's where you fine tune your processes, methods, routines, technique, working on different skills, building rapport with the players. And you've certainly done that over your time as a national umpire, Daryl, going down the nets, building rapport with the players, have a chat with them, seeing sure. different batsmen, different bowlers on both teams. Um, so, Daryl, what did you do in the nets in the lead up to matches and how should up and coming umpires approach training? Okay, well, I would never go into the nets for a long period of time. Half an hour would be uh, probably the maximum time I'd spend down there. I'd be looking for any bowlers that I hadn't seen before. If there was someone new in the squad who might appear in the game, uh, this is more likely to happen in an ODI than a test match. But um, the same would happen uh, for any game. If there was someone new, I'd want to see where they bowled from. Uh, I'd want to see if they were close to the pop increase, whether they were running down the pitch. Um, strangely enough, uh, most times in the nets, if you told a bowler that he just bowled a no ball, he'd say, oh, don't worry about it. I'll get it right in the game. Um, bowlers tend to be a little bit lazy, or they did in the past in their training routines, and they always seem to believe that they had control of where their front foot was going to land when match day came. Uh, it didn't always happen, though. Um, so uh, I used to treat it as a, as, a, as a good occasion to catch up, to meet new people and to prepare for uh, the competition that was about to start because I wanted to be on a, on a good footing with as many people as possible. Absolutely. Um, so then we come into game day, Dale, and all the preparation and training and practice comes into uh, practice on game day. So, Daryl, how important is it to back your processes, preparation and training leading into a game on game day? Well, it's just, it's all one package, Jack, really. Um, you know, if you prepare well, if you know your, your laws and your playing conditions, um, if you've got a good relationship with your partner and you've got confidence in your partner, uh, confidence in the third umpire, if you know what the fourth um, where the fourth umpire is going to be situated if you need them, it just... You just put all those pieces of the package together to get the finished product, and the finished product should be an efficient and hopefully non-controversial day of cricket where you aren't the focus. You want to get through that game without anyone noticing that you're there, apart from your family if they're watching on TV. Um, so, yeah, there's no one specific aspect that 
uh, you focus more on than another. It's really a combination of doing all the little things correctly, in order, speaking appropriately and responding to the pressures and the stresses at the, in the right way. Absolutely. Um, self-reflection and self-analysis is very important for an umpire, Daryl, to reflect after a day's play or after a game or a series, as you would have done in your career. Um, you need to look to get better and improve as an umpire because basically that's the job. You want to get better at it. Sure. Um, you always want to look to learn and ask advice from other colleagues and peers. So, Daryl, how did you go about reflecting after a game or a series? And what are the things umpires should be looking at when they reflect after a game? Well, when I first started umpiring first-class cricket, there was very little television coverage. So there wouldn't be a replay available for me to, to look at at home or in the umpire's room. There, wouldn't, there wasn't a TV set there. So it was all a matter of doing the best job you could do. If you got another game, then obviously you'd done well enough to keep people happy. You didn't get much feedback, to be honest. The next appointment was your feedback. If you didn't get another appointment, okay, you offended someone or you got a couple of decisions wrong, obviously. These days, with so much footage available, there's no excuse for not going back and looking at the key moments in the day. And in a day's test match, there might only be six deliveries that you really need to go back and focus on. Generally speaking, they're going to be LBW appeals, might be a court behind, might be a run out, but the whole day can be brought down to just a couple of minutes of replays, uh, focus on what you think you saw. And uh, with, the with the benefit of slow motion, you can see what, what you were trying to see, uh, what you perhaps didn't see correctly, and you can move forward and, and just prepare yourself for the battle the next day. Um, yes, self-reflection is very important. You can't take anything for granted. And of course, for a lot of my career and my international career, we, we had uh, referees who would be uh, assessing each, each decision, each delivery. Um, and if we made an error, they would certainly tell us. I've got a feeling that if we got it right, they didn't say anything. Um, so yeah, there was always someone there. And of course, we'd always confer with the third umpire because you know, you'd, you'd always feel that the third umpire was your, your closest colleague that wasn't on the field with you. And uh, if you had trust and uh, a good relationship with that person, then he told you you did something wrong, well, you'd accept that and try and do it better the next day. Absolutely. Um, Decision-making is very important, Cricket Daryl. As an umpire, um, you have to be ready when the fielding team appeals to make your decision. But yeah. decision-making doesn't occur when a fielding side appeals. It happens every ball of the match. Um, Daryl, everyone expects umpires to get it all right, but we don't. We're not perfect. Um, but umpires need to develop methods and strategies to move on from bad decisions and focus on the next one. Mm -hmm. um, and also trusting your gut instinct as well, uh, which you did in 1999-2000 during that test match against India and Australia, where you gave Sachin Tendulkar out, you trusted your instincts and backed yourself to give him out, and you did. So, Daryl, what tips would you give to umpires about decision-making and how important is it to trust your instincts as an umpire when it comes to decision-making? And what are your memories from that day at Adelaide when you gave such an out LBW? Yeah, well, it was quite a remarkable day, actually. Uh, I think India was set uh, 395 to win on the, uh, in their second innings. And they started that on the fourth afternoon. Um, at three for 27, they were in a bit of trouble chasing 395 when Sachin walked in and... Uh, 
placed a couple of balls from Glenn McGrath. And uh, when the uh, particular delivery you're talking about came along, um, I, I didn't do anything different that I'd do any other occasion. I prepared myself to watch, you know, obviously the front foot, watch where the ball was pitched and whatever action took part, took place in front of me. And uh, on, the, on, the, on that occasion, I determined that uh, Sachin uh, had tried to duck under a bouncer, obviously, a bouncer that didn't bounce high, very high, uh, was hit on the shoulder. And um, I determined that he was uh, in front of the stumps and the ball would have gone on and, and, and clicked the stumps, not just the bales, but would have hit the top of the stumps. So um, I didn't do anything remarkable. I just gave him out. Um, it wasn't until he'd taken about 10 steps that I realised the enormity of what had just happened, that uh, this was the Indian captain at the time. Um, India was four for 27, chasing 395. Um, I knew that a lot of my friends would tell me, and they later did, that they'd come along to watch Sachin bat, not me umpire. But uh, you do what you need to do. Um, if someone gets hit in front of the stumps and you think the ball's going to hit them and it's pitched in the right place, well, there wasn't there wasn't really any hesitation in my mind because it was the only decision I could make. Um, what I didn't discover, um, uh, by the way, pe people have told me that's very controversial, but um, I I've never seen it that way. Um, and it wasn't until a couple of years ago I discovered that uh, Richie Benno uh, was actually off air at the time. He would have been off air preparing for the post-match or post-day's play uh, summary. But when he came back on air the following day, he said something to the effect that, uh, and then there was Tendulkar, and that was controversial. Well, it was made to be controversial, but from all the pictures I've seen, uh, that ball had reached its highest point and was not going to pass over the top of the stumps. I, I wish I'd known that on the day, but um, I didn't find out for about 16, 17 years. It made me feel a lot better, but unfortunately, Richie had left us by then. Um, um, most, most people agree he was a pretty good judge. He uh, spoke at the right times and what he said was, made sense. And uh, I think what he said that on the fifth day of that match when he made that comment made sense. And um, hopefully when I publish my book, uh, you'll see a series of photos that will confirm there was absolutely no doubt that ball was going to hit the stumps. Absolutely. I have seen a video on YouTube of that. And right. um, it did look like it was going to hit the stumps. And in the end, you made the right decision. You backed yourself, which is very important as an umpire. Just trust your instincts. And if you get it right, that's great. If you get it wrong, so be it. Yeah. You don't get a lot of time to think. That's right. Um, so, Daryl, umpires will have to deal with players who are a bit naughty, a bit, you know, difficult to deal with. Um, conflict, managing players is very important. Um, often umpires will come in to defuse the situation or, you know, separate the players, if they are, you know, exchanging words and that. So, Daryl, what advice would you give to umpires in dealing with conflict in a game? Well, I think the conflict, the physical conflict, certainly happens in, in the lower levels, the, the, the lower levels of cricket. That um, It's something that I re really, I didn't ever need to get involved in because most of the um, conflict in, at my level, my international level, was just, it was just a few verbal jibes, a, a comment here and a comment there. No one ever came to blows. There's never any physical contact. Um, but umpires, in, I, I've watched cricket 
at lower levels. In fact, I watched a game in 2011 between the Staten Island team and the team from Brooklyn. I think they might have been called the Brooklyn Lions. Most of them had come from Jamaica and were living in New York. And um, I felt quite embarrassed watching the game because every batsman that was given out or got out gave the umpire a piece of advice as he left. And they, they weren't very polite. It wasn't the sport that I knew uh, because I'd never had to deal with, with that sort of verbal aggression in the face of the umpire. I mean, no one ever spoke to me rudely like that. Um, and uh, I, I suppose it was partly the fact that baseball has a, uh, a certain uh, aspect of it or an element of it that, that it in, almost requires people to be aggressive. Uh, people, people seem to enjoy, the managers seem to enjoy giving the umpires uh, a difficult time and they're often kicked out of the game. Well, that's not going to happen in cricket, but that maybe that was the overriding influence in Staten Island um, on that particular day. Um, by the way, Staten Island Cricket Club was formed in 1872, which was uh, five years before the first test was ever played. So there has been cricket in some interesting parts of the world uh, for a long, long time. Uh, and I can proudly say I'm a member of the Staten Island Cricket Club. Absolutely. Um, Daryl, what advice would you give to any young umpire starting out? Play for as long as you can. Play the game for as long as you can. Get to know the game, the ins and outs. Know what it feels like to get a bad decision. <laughs> uh, know what it feels like to make a few runs, take a catch and take wickets. Just, you know, you're... Play for the love of the game. If at the same time you can delve into the umpiring area, go for it, uh, which is basically what I did. Uh, those carnivals I umpired in as a 17, 18-year-old, I couldn't have played in them. I'd been in them. I was too old. I had some time on my hands. I wanted to put my foot in the water and just see if I could enjoy it, and I did. I loved it. So volunteer. Umpire some junior games. Umpire the kids where there are less sheep stations involved. Um, uh, yeah, just take any opportunity to get out there and see if your, your judgment is as good as it needs to be to conduct a game uh, harmoniously, correctly and efficiently. Um, make sure everyone's having a great time. Yeah, absolutely. Go Sorry? Go for it. Yeah, that's right. Go for it. I, I play an umpire myself where I'm from um, in the country. And I enjoy it. You know, if I'm not playing one week, I can go and umpire a game and learn about the craft and get better at it. Yep, exactly. That's what it's all about. We, yeah, you exactly learn something right. every day. Exactly yeah. right. So, Daryl, for our next topic, we're going to be talking about the state of international umpiring and discuss other things within international umpiring as well. But let's talk about the state of international umpiring first. Daryl, what's your take on how the game is being umpired today? And what changes would you make to how the game is umpired? Uh, well, I think I touched on that earlier when we were talking about that last series, uh, Australia-India, where it was umpired by the Australians and, you know, obviously a series in England umpired by the English. It seems to be ticking along pretty well. The standard of umpiring seems to be extremely high. I think the umpires are far more skilled than we were 10 years ago and 20 years ago when I was umpiring. Um, they, their knowledge is generally is very, very good. Um, their efficiency at making decisions is great. They've got the third umpire to back them up to resolve any issues. And it seems to me that uh, the state of umpiring at the highest levels in pretty good hands. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I enjoy watching uh, 
uh, a little bit of international um, uh, international cricket. But I, I, I certainly haven't been involved internationally for 10 years. So uh, these are the, you know, the ramblings of someone that's been out of the system and, and just viewing it from afar. But um, I like what I see and, uh, yeah, I enjoy, I enjoy watching good quality cricket and good quality umpiring. Absolutely. Uh, do, do some people get in touch with you um, to talk umpiring from the international panel or not? No, generally speaking, uh, yeah, umpires keep themselves. They, uh, they don't want to talk to someone that's, uh, that has been. Uh, you know, it's 10 years since I umpired a test match. So, you know, my, my way of thinking is, is old fashioned. And, um, you know, what these guys are doing is very impressive today. I think, you know, if you watch that last series, Australia-India, you know, the umpiring was terrific. Um, we had Paul Wilson coming through umpiring a couple of test matches towards the end of that series, or maybe the third and fourth test. He, he did a great job for someone that's only umpired um, maybe four or five. I think he's might have only umpired four test matches, but he's an umpire that's coming through the system and, and, and looking really sharp and positive and, and effective, ticking all the right boxes. So, yeah, I, th I think the state of umpiring is pretty good. Yeah. Um, Daryl, as you said, umpiring's changed dramatically since you retired in 2011. And it's changed over the years, actually. The techniques have changed. I remember umpires used to crouch down really low in the real old days, watching the bowler's feet through the popping crease. Uh, that was for yeah. the back foot law, which is no longer um, in cricket anymore. That was changed in 1963 to the front right. foot law, which we have to this present day. Um, umpires used to lunge forward in their stance when they were standing upright and used to go forward like that as well. But umpires tend to stand up straight, keep still and don't move their head as much. And, as they did back in the old days. The uniforms have changed as well. I remember umpires used to wear ties and button-up shirts, Daryl. Yes, Not great we on did. a hot day, I'm guessing. No, it wasn't, especially in the subcontinent. Yeah. Um, it was crazy. Yeah, that's the only sport in the world that has umpires wearing ties and button-up shirts, and they used to wear white trench coats. I'm sure you have a collection of your uniforms over the years, Daryl. I've dumped most of that rubbish. <laughs> I thought you would have kept them. <laughs> Only if I want to sell ice creams at a football match would I wear a jacket like that. <laughs> no, I say bring back the trench coats. They look pretty cool. You know, bring back. You know, that's what they used to wear back in the day. Um, no, ICC, no, bring it back. <laughs> keep it modern. Stay modern. Yeah. Um, and umpires have technology to assist them in decision-making. Um, and the DRS has come in as well. Daryl, what has been the biggest change in umpiring from when you umpired to the modern day umpires? And would you prefer to umpire today or in your era? Well, I still look back and, and enjoy the fact that pre-DRS, when we made a decision, the players had to accept that decision. And on many occasions they were wrong, uh, the decisions that is. Um, but the game was played in the right spirit people begrudgingly accepted the decision and moved on. You know, life, life carried on. Um, with the DRS coming in, it means that more decisions will be accurately resolved. But um, I think it, it takes a little bit away from the importance of the umpire or the, uh, the satisfaction that an umpire can get now. I, I, I don't think I'd like to stand out there and have a number of decisions reviewed and and overturned in a day. I had that experience once in a, uh, I think it might have been a T20 or a, some competition. Uh, I, I didn't enjoy that. 
Um, so I like cricket the old-fashioned way, but I'm quite happy for in the modern times the way the game's gone. Uh, I'm just I'm just glad that I came from the old era when uh, out was out, not out was not out. Absolutely, it's where you respect the umpire's decision that was final, either good or bad. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Mm. That's right. Um, Daryl, we've seen over the last few years more female umpires come through the system and take up the profession in a male-dominated uh, profession, really, which umpiring is. And that's great to see. Many women have gone on to umpire women's internationals, World Cups, T20 World Cups in the women's game, um, and an opportunity to officiate in men's games every now and again. Um, we also see more and more umpires to the international panel of ICC development umpires. Um, so the ICC promoting women officials, which is brilliant to see, and long yeah. may that continue. In Australia, we have two females on that panel, Claire Poldersack and Eloise Sheridan, who's from South Australia, actually. Um, Claire Poldersack, she's umpired many international matches in the women's game and did a few men's as well. Uh, yeah. Last summer at the SCG, she became the first female to officiate in a men's test, being fourth umpire um, in that test match, which was um, a proud occasion. And Eloise Sheridan, who's from South Australia, she's really umpired well in domestic cricket here in Australia. She's become the first South Australian female to be appointed to a Cricket Australia umpiring panel, which is great. She's joined Cricket Australia's supplementary umpiring panel, and she's being caught up to the um, Australia and India women's series happening at the moment up there in mm -hmm. Queensland. And we yep. wish her all the best because she will be making her international debut in that uh, series. So all the best to her. So Claire and Eloise are leading the way for female umpires and officials within the game of cricket here in Australia, but all over the world. Daryl, how do you see the future of female umpires in cricket? And do you see a female umpire umpiring a men's test match in the near future? I don't know about the near future, but I can see uh, female umpires developing further and further and uh, move, moving up the ladder, so to speak. I can see... Uh, 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 women being involved in the national panel eventually uh, when their performance is warranted. Uh, there's another young lady who umpires here in Adelaide, Mary Waldron, who is actually from Ireland. And I, a couple of years ago, I went out to uh, a club match here in Adelaide. It was the first time that a men's club match, Tea Tree Gully was playing at home out at Perderinga, and it was umpired by two women. And that was a, that was a first. Um, so yeah, it was nice to be there on that historical day. So yeah, the women are um, certainly not taking over, but they're they're moving into the ranks, and it's great to see the recruiting happening. And uh, yeah, the more the merrier. Um, it doesn't matter who's making the decision. The most important thing is whether it's out or not, and whether it's correct or not. So um, yeah, go for it, go for it, ladies. Uh, you know, please join the club. Absolutely, and um, it's great that we're seeing women umpires eventually go into international ranks and hopefully higher honours. So long may yeah. that continue and great work by the ICC and, and, and obviously home boards around the world promoting women's, women officials, which is brilliant to yes. see. Exactly. Now, Daryl, many people don't know what international umpires actually do behind the scenes. Many people don't know what the third umpire, fourth umpire or match referee does. They know what the on-field umpires do, but they don't know what those other umpires in the match referee do. So Daryl, give us a bit of a snapshot of what the third umpire, fourth umpire and match referee do within a game of cricket. Okay, well, I think most people are pretty au fait with the third umpire. They know that 
third umpire sitting there and responding to uh, reviews, responding to runouts, responding to any request that the umpires on the field may may ask may ask of him. So or her, the third umpire's got access to all the statistics uh, uh, that are that are happening. Got access to replays. Uh, got access to seeing the bowler's front foot land on the popping crease. So the, the third umpire is actually becoming quite an important person in the game. Uh, still, you know, the two on field uh, are doing the, the bulk of the work and that third umpire is there for, I guess, referrals. Um, if anything is uncertain on the field, that's where the third umpire comes in. So the third umpire has got to be sitting in front of the, the screen, you know, for every, every delivery and, and more. Um, keeping the on-field umpires up to date. They might be passing on a weather report that's come through. Uh, they might have uh, one of their screens with uh, with the radar showing that uh, there's weather approaching. So, um, you know, the third umpire's there to, to keep feeding as much into the on-field umpires as they can possibly digest uh, and also, you know, resolve the difficult situations when they're referred to. The fourth umpire has a less onerous task. The fourth umpire is usually located on the ground, uh, usually between the two playing boxes uh, where the uh, two competing teams may have their players. It depends on whether it's a test or if it's a T20 or whatever it is. Um, the fourth umpire is available to tidy up lots of loose ends, let's put it that way. Um, if the boundary ropes uh, are dislodged and needs to be replaced, fourth umpire will jump out and put that back into order. If a replacement ball's required, fourth umpire will have those available to run out to the two umpires in the middle. Um, really de dealing with uh, drinks for the umpires, uh, all the little odds and ends that you take for granted, uh, someone's got to do them and it's usually the fourth umpire. Um, it's a good, a good situation, it's a good learning curve. It's a good chance for the fourth umpire to be there, hear the conversation going on between the umpires, see how the best umpires at that level operate and pick up any tips that uh, appeal to them that they can use in their game. So it's usually you know, more of a development uh, position than, than one that uh, people crave to be appointed as a fourth umpire. You really want to be appointed on the field or in the box. They're the, they're the, they're the, they're the key jobs. Now, the referee's got an interesting role. I did that for eight years for Cricket Australia, where I would uh, conduct the toss. Uh, I'd spend time with the umpires before the game, during the breaks and after the game. Uh, as a referee, you've got to assess the umpire's performance. Uh, that involves assessing any decisions that they make. And I'm thinking that in a Sheffield Shield match going for four days, that might involve very close scrutiny of maybe 60, 70 deliveries. Uh, all the appeals are recorded, batsman, the bowler, the outcome. Uh, what the replay showed, uh, whether it was right or wrong, um, the number of statistics to be retained by the by the referee, and all the paperwork regarding, you know, tidying up the match over rates. Of course, we've already mentioned um, any reporting that takes place if anyone breaches the code of conduct. It's the referee who deals with that person and determines the sanction if one's applied. So the referee has a lot of work to do after the game, especially because those reports need to be written and, and uploaded, uh, provided for the governing body and anyone else who's interested um, so that, uh, you know, that game can be fully resolved. There'll be a report on the state of the ground, whether it was up to scratch, the change rooms, uh, the pitch, uh, all the facilities, car parking, food, 
cleanliness, all, all, all those areas that you take for granted, they're all covered in a report submitted by the referee. So yeah, it's quite a, quite a lengthy job, but the most, I think the key issue for the referee is to resolve any issues that come, dissent, whatever, if it's reported, and also to assess the umpires because we, we all need assessment and uh, the umpires like to be provided with that feedback initially on the day of play. Most umpires like to hear what, you know, how they've gone. And then within a day that report is uploaded onto the system and the umpire can see precisely how they've been assessed. So it's, it's, it's quite transparent and um, everyone knows what, uh, what they're getting and what's been said about them. Absolutely. So the so, yeah. So I hope everyone's got a bit of an idea of what the uh, third and fourth and match referee do during a match in international cricket. Yeah, good fun. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Daryl, mental health has become a big problem in cricket among players, but it has become a big problem in society as well. Um, Daryl, umpiring being a high-pressure job, with that, it comes with a lot of pressure from the media when incorrect decisions happen within a match or you're performing badly and poorly over a long period of time. I was reading Ian Gould's book, and Daryl, you would have umpired a lot of games with Gunner, uh, which yep, was Ian sure. Gould's nickname, um, and you umpired his, your last test match with him in 2011. Um, he mentioned in his book he was burnt out, suffered a mental breakdown. He said in his book, in the end, 10 years of constant matches, meetings, and travel wore me down. He's, he went on to say, I know for, for sure that some of my colleagues have experienced similar issues, but like me, they cover it up for the main reason that it's a great life and you are loath to give it up. He then said, do the ICC have a duty of care to provide more pastoral care for umpires and referees? Perhaps maybe a better idea is to have people around who can recognize the signs. Now, we mentioned before that, <clears throat> that the ICC may be considering having home and away umpires to cut down travel, and that could improve umpires and match referees' mental health going forward in the near future. Um, Daryl, how much of a toll did international umpiring took on you? And did some of your colleagues express the, uh, concerns for their mental health and well-being? I don't believe anyone did in my time. My era was really a little bit of overlap with Ian Gould, but uh, my, my era was really basically from the early 90s until 2010, 11. Um, uh, what sort of toll did it have? Uh, I'm still seeing a therapist. No, 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 I'm joking. Um, I don't, I, to be honest, I don't know what sort of a toll it had. There were highs and lows. Uh, I think um, maybe there's a bit of different terminology these days. Uh, people, uh, people seem to be struggling in many different ways. They just have different labels for it these days. I mean, I, I must admit, I, there were times when I was quite depressed with the way things were going and if you're away from home and that happens, it, it can be very difficult, very testing, um, especially if you think the, the world's against you or the media's jumping on your back and you keep reading your name in the paper and you don't want to see it. Uh, look, um, it, it's up to each individual, isn't it? You, you can't, you can't uh, cover everybody. Um, I, I certainly didn't know at the time that Ian was struggling in any way. Perhaps his struggles came soon after. Perhaps his struggle came when I when I departed from the scene. Maybe I was keeping him uh, keeping him afloat. And as soon as I left, he went downhill. I don't really know. I haven't spoken to Ian since then. Uh, he was an outstanding umpire, great personality, really bubbly fella. And 
uh, he would be the last one that anyone from the outside would think was having any problems because of his his outgoing nature and his his humour and his his love of life. He was just he's the sort of guy you'd want to be with uh, if you're off the field because something would be happening. There'd be a joke, a bit of laugh, uh, there'd be a bit of action. Um, so yes, I was, I was disappointed to hear that he had had tough times, but then I reflected and thought, well, I guess we've all been through those moments uh, ourselves. Uh, they are easier to cope with, I think, when you're in your home country. Um, I did leave Australia 80 times to go and umpire overseas, so there were a lot of opportunities to get to uh, to get the highs and the lows. So, uh, so be it. That's life. You take what uh, what comes and. Uh, you respond in the best way that you possibly can. Absolutely. Um, did the ICC ever mention that to you at all or any of the umpires about that or support available? I don't believe that was ever discussed um, in my time. Uh, I think it's more of a uh, the last decade situation. Uh, no, um, people people had either had poor form, weren't umpiring well or they were umpiring well. We we didn't really talk about those issues. We, perhaps we should have. And we should have been checking to see if everyone's okay. But, you know, it's, it wasn't something we did. Yeah. Um, obviously, you were a match referee with Cricket Australia. Uh, Cricket Australia focusing on that with match officials themselves? Oh, yes. There's certainly been a lot more focus as we've all become educated uh, about, um, you know, about life and about uh, personal issues and mental issues. We, you know, these are things we just didn't discuss in the old days, but in the, the last decade, it's become much more prevalent, much more common for someone to be um, having difficulties. And, and the, you know, the boards, uh, Australian Cricket Board, Cricket Australia, um, will, will, take, will take action when, when someone needs help. That's, that's the good thing. We are now looking out for each other. We are concerned about, you know, people's state of mind. And in the old days, um, it, I guess it just had a different label. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, different generation, different era, different mm -hmm. times, really. Now it's yep. becoming more open in, in this modern era with umpires sure. and players. Yep. Um, if this has raised any concerns for your mental health, do get in touch with many of the mental health organisations that can help you. We have also done some other episodes on the podcast about mental health, so check them out. Please do. Uh, those videos have the links to all the mental health organizations for you to get in touch. So please watch them. And if you're struggling, seek some help. It's great to talk to someone. Now, Daryl, we see more past players becoming international umpires and they come from first class and international backgrounds. Um, we see that more and more. Nearly all the current members of the elite panel have played some sort of first class or international cricket. I think the only one who hasn't is Joel Wilson from the West Indies. I think he's the only one who hasn't played first class or in Ash cricket. Daryl, we don't see your type of umpire coming through the system anymore. Someone who hasn't played first class or in national cricket, just a pure umpire and a pure specialist. So Daryl, tell us how does the pathway differ from for class, uh, sorry, for past players compared to the pathway for regular umpires at a national level? And why aren't we seeing your type of umpire who hasn't played first class or in national cricket being selected on the elite panel? Uh, good question. I, I always consider myself as a garden variety type umpire. Um, you know, I just came through the system because, you know, it's something I chose to do. I had a passion for it. I wanted to test it out. Uh, I tried it out. I loved it. I enjoyed doing it. And, you know, I was recognised as being reasonably successful and promoted. Um, I know in Australia we've had a system of project umpire 
contracts where uh, past players have been encouraged to head down the umpiring pathway. Paul Wilson, I, I believe, was, was on that pathway once upon a time. Rod Tucker was probably on it at some stage. Um, I don't know that, uh, I, I, to be honest, I, I'm quite ignorant about who's doing what in, in this day and age. I've really been out of touch for some time now. But, um, yeah, I, I, can't, I, I don't know why um, it would be um, exclusive to past players. It's, um, it doesn't really... I, I, I don't believe a past player has a huge advantage over a non-past uh, first-class player when the ball hits the pads. I think, I think there are certain skills you need and you make your judgment uh, according to your experience, what you see, what you hear. And um, um, yeah, it, it, sometimes it baffles me why there aren't more uh, non-players coming through the system. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, is it just because, you know, they want to go with past players because of that? reasoning the ICC or they just think well they're good umpires we select them to be a part of the various panels well it's an interesting discussion point when when you look at the uh, the elite panel of umpires those umpires have been selected because they've been extremely good at what they do and that's umpiring right they've umpired they've worked their way up through the pathway whatever that might be and they've been rewarded by selection uh, on the panel because that because of their umpiring when you look at the international panel of referees, none of them have been promoted to that position because they've been outstanding in their field of refereeing, because they haven't done any refereeing. They've only been promoted to that position because they belong to the past players club. Uh, I, I, don't, I can't think of any referee that had any experience as a referee before he was refereeing an international match. I mean, that's not a bad way to start, is it? Yeah. So there does seem to be a, a little bit of inequity in the system where an umpire needs to uh, prove himself as an umpire before he can reach the, the pinnacle, whereas a referee really only needs to have played a couple of test matches. It's a good discussion point. I've never it come is. up with um, It is, but the match referee role has not been in cricket for that long. Oh, we had referees in the 90s. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's, it hasn't been in for a long period of time. It's only come in in a little while, as you said, in the 90s, because um, it was just basically you had the umpires and that was it, no match referee. Basically, all the umpires did all the work. Now, the match referee does all the paperwork and all that other stuff that goes with it. <laughs> it's true. Um, Daryl, te with technology coming into the game more and more, assisting umpires more than ever, Back in your day, you didn't really have much technology. I think in the late, I think in the nineties, uh, third umpire came in. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Came in to replays for stumpings and runouts, etc. Um, we now see the ICC using technology for front foot no balls and correcting incorrect short run calls now. Um, so, Daryl, do you think that the balance between technology and human element? is just about right? Or do you think the balance is too much in favour of technology and taking away that human element from the umpires? Well, whatever I think is not going to change anyone's, anyone's decision on it, any moves that have been made. I think, I think we're just moving towards more and more technology taking over the role, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, I don't know. Uh, 
I would like to think that the umpire was really only standing out there to hold someone's cap and jumper uh, and not being involved in the decision-making process and, 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 and playing, playing a role in, the, in that great game we love. You know, where supposedly we, we, we should have respect for you know, the opponents and the game and all the participants, including the umpires. So uh, tough question. Uh, I'm going to leave that to you to make your final decision. Yeah, um, I think, well, because you've, you've gone up through the system without that and you build up those skills, whereas you go to international cricket, you become, I don't know, sort of lazy and not really focusing on that anymore because basically what the ICC are telling the officials now is basically focus at the business end, which is the batsman. Don't worry yeah. about the front foot. Focus on getting the decision right. Just changing the, the job, you're right. Mm. Yes. You talked about the introduction of the third umpire in my very first one-day international that was played at the Wacker in January 94. I'd never had access to a third umpire before. Uh, I'd made my decisions in Shield games and in uh, Mercantile Cup games and McDonald's Cup games and whatever other format there was. I'd made my decisions without ever having uh, a third umpire. So to be umpiring my first one-day international... Uh, it wasn't something that I was standing out there thinking, Daryl, remember you've got a third umpire. So I did make a tight call early in the game and uh, I did forget that I had the third umpire available and uh, the player that I gave out, um, the New Zealand uh, wicketkeeper, I think it was Tony Blaine, Blaine um, did tell me as, I got, as he got up off the ground after being given out, run out, he did remind me that I should have used the technology. Um, and perhaps I should have. But um, anyway, the game moved on. And most other times I remembered that I had a third umpire available and I used them only when necessary. I didn't use them uh, on every occasion. They, I, I prefer umpires to use their skills. And I think what you were alluding to before was that perhaps umpires have been a little bit de-skilled by the uh, introduction of so much technology. There's, uh, there are tasks now that they just don't have to perform, which is a little bit sad, but that's a progression of the game that's uh, determined by the governing body and that's the ICC. And yeah, that's um, yeah, obviously, because every time it's a stumping or a run out, umpires are not trusting their instincts. They're just going upstairs because they get criticised if they don't want to go. If they don't go upstairs, then they get criticised. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. But we all like to see an umpire make a decision. At the end of the day, yes. Yeah. And that's what yeah, the game's about, out, making decisions. When someone's yeah. out by when someone's out by a meter and a half, people will say, "What was he looking at? You know, why did he use the third umpire?" Well, um, you know, perhaps it's become a bit of a crutch and uh, it's used too much. Yeah. So, Daryl, I thought to end this discussion today, let's hear some funny stories from your umpiring days. Now, Daryl, I'm sure you have plenty of funny stories to tell, and it will create lots of episodes for the podcast. When researching for our discussion today, I came across two funny incidences involving you. And I would love to hear what happened in those two funny incidences. The first one, Daryl, was you chasing a stray dog that ran onto the field during the second test between Sri Lanka and New Zealand and Gandhi. Can you tell us what happened there? Well, precisely that, a stray dog. Um, if you've ever been to the subcontinent and watched cricket, you'll know that there's a stray dog on the field in every match on every day. I don't think it's the same dog that's uh, transported from ground to ground, but you can guarantee at some stage there'll be a dog on the ground. And on this occasion, 
uh, that particular dog left a message on the ground right at square leg where I was due to stand. So I was simply trying to shuffle that dog away and uh, someone snapped a great photo. It would it appeared on the front page of the local paper the next day in Colombo. And I think the caption said, even the street dogs didn't like umpire Harper. Um, <laughs> so yes, I, I, did I did enjoy that moment. I did enjoy that photo. And uh, I have gone with the line of every dog has his day uh, on many occasions in my life since that photo was taken. Uh, yeah, I love that photo. Yeah. Um, the second one involves you umpiring an ODI between Australia and England at the SCG in 2010-11. It was the sixth ODI out of the series, which was involving, which involved seven games, I should say, in that series. It was the sixth ODI. Um, you were umpiring the match with Maria Erasmus, and Michael Clark wanted to call for a batting power play. Australia were chasing 333 to win, set by England. Australia chased down the runs to win by two wickets. Now, Michael Clark wanted the batting power play. Your partner, Maria Erasmus, said, no, you can't call for it. Maybe he didn't do it in time or something. And then Maria Erasmus said, we've been in position for more than a minute. And then Clark said something and Maria said, because that's the rule. That's my best South African accent, <laughs> Maria Erasmus. Very um, good. Then the next server from your end, Daryl, Clark called for the batting power play again. Then Andrew Strauss set the field for a batting power play. He had the men out ready for the power play. He then walks over to Maria Erasmus at square leg. And then he talks to you, Daryl, at your end. Then you said to Strauss, there's no power play. Then over the stump mics, you said, it's not on. It's not on if it's not on. <laughs> then, Clark said, then Clark said something to you, Daryl, said, Daryl, everyone wants us to take it. And you, and you said, shall we do a vote? <laughs> and then we got ready for, to start the over. Then you said over the stump mics, no power play. Never has been. <laughs> so Daryl, Tell us what happened on that night at the SCG and did Australia get the batting power play? That's a damn good question, Jack. And I've really got to be honest and say, I don't remember that happening. I do remember another incident from the same, I think it was the same night where Kevin Peterson was bowling to Cameron White and Cameron White slashed a, Kevin Peterson bowling is a lot of spinners. And uh, Kevin, uh, Cameron White slashed at a ball outside the off stump that Matt Pryor actually dropped. I didn't think uh, White had hit the ball. Uh, it went through to the keeper, he dropped it. And Kevin Peterson carried on like a pork chop as if, as if he'd just missed out on a wicket because the ball had been dropped. I was reasonably confident that it hadn't been touched. Uh, a little bit um, at the end of the over, uh, Kevin Peterson called out to me. He was standing near Cameron. He said, Daryl, Daryl, he smashed that one, didn't he? And uh, I thought to myself, well, here's a, here's a moment where I could get myself into trouble. If I say that he hit it and he didn't, or if I say that he didn't and he did, uh, I could be proven wrong. So I took the sensible path and simply replied to Kevin, oh, come on, Kevin, I'm not going to play childish games with you. And I hit it off to square leg. Uh, so it wasn't resolved as far as Kevin was concerned. The next over, similar in a similar moment, a slash at the ball outside the off stump, um, no contact, big appeal from Kevin Peterson, not out from me. He immediately went to Andrew Strauss telling Andrew, he smashed that one, he smashed that one. You, you've got to review the decision. You've got to review the decision. So Andrew reluctantly reviewed it. It came back, no contact, bat on ball, not out, decision stands. As Kevin walked back past me, I was hoping that he'd look at me. Uh, I wanted to 
just give him a nice gentle sweet smile as he walked past just to confirm that I'd been right and he'd been wrong and he wouldn't look he steamed past looking superior and uh, as if I didn't uh, even exist in the world he got back to his bowling mark and I decided to have the last word which I usually do and uh, did in those days I put my hand out I stopped him from bowling I turned around I walked right back I got quite a, up quite close to him and I said to him hey Kevin apparently he didn't hit that one and I turned around and walked back and got in my position and the over was completed. Uh, several people from different parts of the world told me that their lip reading skills were very good. And Kevin said a very, very bad word behind my back as I walked back into my position. But uh, that's of no concern to me. I, I got the last word in. Uh, he didn't hit the ball. Uh, my decision was confirmed as correct. And Kevin's actually a player. I, I admire greatly. I always loved umpiring him because uh, something would always happen. There was always some excitement around. He's just a larger than life character. So if ever I did a Kevin Peterson game, that was a highlight. And uh, if I could get under his skin and annoy him on that occasion, that's what I was trying to do. I mean, Absolutely. I'm out there to enjoy myself. Yeah, that's right. Um, so any other funny stories? We just touched on two there, but any other funny stories that you would like to share during your career that stood out for you? Well, I hope this one's still politically correct. It might be a good one for me to finish on, Jack. Um, I was umpiring my second ODI. So it was uh, 19, or oh, around about 1995, 96. I waited about almost two years between my, my first and my second. And it was uh, on Adelaide Oval. It was Pakistan playing the West Indies. Uh, Roger Harper was batting. At one stage, a wicket fell at the far end, at the scoreboard end. We were at the Torrens end. Um, and Roger was standing there waiting for the new batsman to arrive. And I looked up at the scoreboard and there was his name in the batting slot, Harper. And there was my name in the bottom right-hand corner in the umpiring slot, Harper. Harper, Harper. I said to Roger, hey, Roger, two Harpers in this game, two Harpers on the scoreboard. That's pretty unusual. Roger just nodded. I still hadn't heard him speak at this stage. He's a very quiet guy. He just nodded in agreement. And just as my partner arrived from Square League, it was a fellow by the name of Terry Proof from Perth, Western Australia, great umpire, umpired a number of tests as well as ODIs. Um, just as he arrived, I said, I thought I'd take the conversation a step further. And I said, hey, Roger, do you reckon we might be related? Now, Roger comes from Guyana and he's about six foot five. And he's an, an athlete. Uh, I come from Adelaide, South Australia. I'd never made the six foot mark. Uh, I'm a little bit overweight. There really wasn't a great chance that we were going to be related. But, you know, you never know in this world who's related to who. Roger thought about it for a moment. And he said in a beautiful, deep voice, suitable for a, a radio announcer, he said, maybe if you go way, way back... And from that moment in time, wherever I saw Roger around the world, because he uh, continued to play, and he also, in my uh, umpiring, international umpiring career, he was often the coach of Kenya um, in World Cups, etc. cetera. Um, saw him in different parts of the world. And he would always greet me. He would start it. It would be a high five, a very high five, because he's a big guy. And he would say to me, g'day, cuz, short for cousin. So... Uh, that's how I broke the ice with Roger Harper and it went off well. Um, it didn't always work that way. I mean, 
uh, not everyone appreciated my sense of humour, but we, we had a relationship that was uh, built on a funny start, but um, he's the sort of bloke that would stop and have a chat wherever I saw him. Very friendly, warm man. Um, yeah, someone that um, I, I greatly admired. And uh, I sort of sort of count as a, uh, as a friend, even if we, if, we, if, if we aren't related, I don't know. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's Roger from Guyana. You Enjoyed that moment to this day, or no? I, I haven't. I haven't seen Roger for years, and uh, no, I don't. I don't hassle anyone on the internet. So um, if I see him, I'll see him. I might see him at a test of Adelaide over one day. I don't know. Um, I'd love love to have a chat and have a drink and talk about the old times because uh, yes, he was part of an incredible era when he was playing for the West Indies. Absolutely. Well, Daryl, thank you so much for for joining me today. I really loved our discussion talking about your career i've enjoyed it immensely i've learned a lot about umpiring as well and i hope everyone has as well if they want to become an umpire as well it's just been very fascinating talking about your journey in, in cricket and thank you so much for joining me today i really appreciate it it's been my pleasure jack i i umpired for 28 years and i've refereed domestically for another eight or nine years you know my life's been in cricket it's cricket's in my blood i love it and uh, yeah, I enjoy talking about it. I, you know, not so much the decisions whether they're right or wrong, but just you know, the chance to meet people and to see, you know, see the best players up close and personal, and see them performing at the, you know, the highest level was. Uh, I always thought that was that was a treat that I, uh, I, I didn't necessarily deserve, but I, I enjoyed every minute up there. So, yeah, encouragement to anyone that wants to take it on. You'll never know until you give it a try. And uh, some people will be suited to it, others won't. I've often said that if you want to exceed at someone at something, if you want to do really well at something, select an area that not many people want to do. Uh, and umpiring cricket is one of those. People aren't clambering over each other to try and get to umpire their first game. But um, uh, in hindsight, I'm really glad that I took the challenge on and I've loved every minute and enjoyed the chance to talk to you today. Thanks, Jack. Thank you, Daryl. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's one of my favourite chats that I've done thus far on the podcast, and I will enjoy it forever for a long time just to have the opportunity to speak to you. Only one of your favourites? It, it's not up there? Uh, it's probably, in a cricket sense, probably the best talk that I've Thanks, done. mate. No, um, my pleasure. Thank you, Daryl. Um, and to those watching, thank you for watching. Hope you enjoyed it. Keep safe and bye for now. Hi everyone, hope you enjoyed my cricket discussion with former ICC elite international umpire Daryl Harper. Be sure to subscribe and click the bell to get the latest episodes of the podcast and like and share our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. Until next time, keep safe and bye for now.